Hello and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast presented by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. As promised, we are continuing our bi-weekly format and as promised, we now have intro and outro music. As a matter of fact, we have different intro and outro music this week. And so drop me a line on Twitter or go to our Facebook page and let me know which intro and outro music you prefer. Uh, there's going to be a different song in the outro than there is in the intro tonight, but Anyway, in the news this week, you probably saw the United States Senate passed a non-binding resolution supporting the U.S. women's national soccer team. I uh, linked an article about this on our Facebook page and then shared it a little bit too, so by all means take a look. But a non-binding resolution from the Senate is exactly what it sounds like. And yes, I am talking, by the way, about the United States Senate. I'm not talking about like the the state Senate of the state of Nebraska or something like that. No, indeed, I'm talking about um, uh, the 100 people, two from every state, that are elected to represent us in Washington, D.C., coming out and passing a non-binding resolution, unanimously no less, not a single person voted against it, supporting the petition of the United States women's soccer team uh, in the EEOC uh, protesting against their unequal pay that we talked about a few episodes ago. Uh, Senator Barbara Mikulski, who's a Democrat from Maryland, said in her best pun uh, that we need to stop kicking these women around. Love it. Um, but also, Patty Murray, who's a Democrat from Washington, said, quote, Despite all of these tremendous successes, these players do not get paid on par with their male counterparts. This isn't just about the money. It's also about the message it sends to women and girls across our country and around the world. The pay gap between the men and women's national soccer team is emblematic of what is happening all across our country, unquote. Um, now, some people will point out, people who are pre- pretty astute political observers will say that, that passing this piece of legislation Legislation is sort of a prelude. It's kind of setting up uh, the conversation about a piece of legislation called the Paycheck Fairness Act that's going to be coming on later on this fall. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's an important symbolic thing the Senate did this week. Um, last October, the Senate tried to do the same thing. Uh, Patrick Leahy, who's a Democrat from Vermont, tried to bring up the same thing. Uh, and a Republican senator from Tennessee named Lamar Alexander actually blocked it, um, saying that we have a budget to pass, is what he said. I don't disagree that they have a budget to pass, but of course, at the same time, I feel like our Senate can walk and chew gum at the same time. Anyway, um, update on that, and by all means, as, as that continues to progress or change, I will, I will continue to talk about it on this podcast, because I do think it is a very interesting thing, and I find myself thinking about it a lot. Um, I also found myself thinking this week about a lot of life issues and how they relate to sport. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I moved and that I'm now broadcasting from a different place. Uh, my, my family and I moved into a new home in Marietta, Georgia, where I'm now living, uh, which has been great so far, but we formerly had lived in a very small space, and now we're trying to, to um, populate an entire house with furniture. Um, and so I have this home office, which is great, um, but I have to get a desk to actually go in the home office. I need to get bookshelves to put all the books on, on in the home office here. And so when I was looking at all of these different desk options and Lord, there are a lot of desk options out there. Um, I started looking a little bit more into standing desks. Um, two of the athletes that I coach both have standing desks, and they both say that they're great. Um, and in fact, there's all sorts of terrible things that have been associating with sitting over the course of the last several years in the United States. I've even heard that, that sitting is the new smoking uh, in the United States. You might have heard that as well, um, that a lot of the same health ailments, be they 
um, uh, heart disease or obesity or weight gain or, or just the general problems that come from sedentary lifestyles are exacerbated by the amount of time that we spend sitting. Um, I have a fairly long commute, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, and so I sit a little bit already. And so when I started looking into getting a desk for my home, I started thinking, well, do I really want to be sitting at a desk in my house as well? Maybe I should get a standing desk. Um, in 2013, as you probably know, the American Medical Association actually adopted policy recognizing the potential risks of prolonged sitting and encouraging employers, employees, and others to make available alternatives to sittings. Um, obesity, like I I said, um, uh, heart disease, all sorts of other things have been related to that. Um, I also looked up and found there were two studies in 2015, just last year. There was one that was published in Physiotherapy Theory Practices and another one that was published in the journal called Gait Posture uh, that found that very they had very high levels of hip activation while standing. And so the more you stood, to a point, um, you would be able to acti- activate more muscles in your hips um, and throughout your spinal column. Um, and as long as you didn't tire yourself out, as long as you didn't overdo it, just like any other training, actually, um, you could potentially gain a lot from standing throughout the course of the day. Uh, myself, personally, I'm actually more comfortable standing. As I'm addressing you right now, I am standing. Um, I am a teacher by training, um, and so I literally think better on my feet. I'm accustomed to, to being in a classroom, standing, moving about the room, uh, and answering questions. Uh, and so I figured, well, if I had a standing desk, that might be a very, very positive thing. Thing. So I started looking into some of the studies from standing desks or on standing desks particularly though. Uh, there was an earlier study this year in 2016 from Standard, uh, from Stanford, pardon me, from Standard, nice, uh, about standing desks, the study from Stanford um, that said that workers reported 78% um, or they were 78% more likely to report no back pain at the end of the day uh, if they were using a standing desk than if they were using a sitting desk. And so you know, things like that are very, very striking to me. There's been about 20 or so studies. Um, but also very recently, just within the last month or two, there was a meta-study of the 20 or so studies uh, that was done and published in, in a scientific journal. Now, a meta-study, you'll recall, is when one particular study looks at a whole bunch of other studies and tries to draw conclusions about uh what uh, all of these studies have to say. Um, If we combine them all together, what is it that we can learn about a particular phenomenon? Um, And and it said, it had a couple of interesting findings. First of all, it said that most of the studies, and there's only, like I said, been like 20 or so studies on standing desks particularly. Most of the studies have been kind of poorly designed. They had low numbers of participants, for example. Uh, They didn't engage uh, really worthwhile scientific protocols and all that sort of thing. But Even if you put that aside, um, they said that it looks like standing desks only make you stand for about 30 minutes to two hours more per day. Uh, than somebody who doesn't have a standing desk. And so it's not like if you think about somebody who works for eight hours a day, that one person sits eight hours a day and the other person stands eight hours a day. Rather, one person sits eight hours a day and the other person stands seven or sits seven and a half hours a day. And so it doesn't really end up causing you a whole lot more standing time. Only about 30 minutes to 120 minutes more of, of standing per day actually ends up taking place. Um, the same was basically true for treadmill desks. If you've seen those, literally the desks where you sit there and you walk while you're standing and working. Um, treadmill desks only cause, call, 
cause about 29 minutes more standing throughout the course of the day than people that have just regular old plain traditional desks. Pedaling desks, the ones where you actually sit and you pedal a bike under, only cause 12 minutes more of activity that that is different from the activity or the lack of activity uh, that characterize people at traditional desks. So people with standing desks, with, with, with treadmill desks, with pedaling desks, they aren't having drastically different experiences. Um, they even looked actually at people who take walking breaks or they go for walks during their breaks from work, and they found that even those people only end up spending about 16 minutes less per day st- uh, sitting than they would otherwise, only about 16 minutes more per day standing. Um, but probably the bigger and more interesting finding of the study, um, and it asserted this fairly strongly, was that just because sitting is terrible for you, it doesn't mean that standing is really good for you. Um, just because you're doing the opposite of sitting doesn't automatically mean that you cancel out all of the health negative effects uh, of sitting. Uh, and I think that's kind of important to keep in mind, uh, not only in this instance, but in every instance. Going in the opposite direction doesn't necessarily solve anything. Um, so they, they said they particularly cited a 2005 study that showed that there's uh, more problems with enlarged veins and particularly varicose veins um, for people who end up standing for extended periods of time. And, and, and certainly I think many of us probably have anecdotal evidence uh, of that uh, from people that we know, um, be it our grandparents, our parents, whoever it happens to be. Um, so. I ultimately ended up opting to save about $600 and, and went with a traditional desk rather than a standing desk just because I wasn't quite convinced by it. I still am very intrigued by the notion, though, and I'm going to continue to keep an eye on, on the research around standing and sitting and, and particularly about the research on uh, standing desks. Uh, similarly, speaking of sitting, um, there's been a lot more research over the course of the last few years on commuting. Um, and I found myself thinking about that a lot over the course of the last little while as well because while I was considering getting a standing desk, I also said, well, you know, I commute a, a pretty significant amount as well. Uh, I essentially commute to the other side of Atlanta. And so um, I have a significant commute that, that uh, was shortened by this recent move, shortened significantly by this, by this recent move. Um, but it basically puts me right on average um, for commuting in the counties that surround Fulton County in Georgia. And I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Um, as you may know, uh, long commutes have been shown to, to cause increases in weight gain and even heart disease uh, among a lot of the people who, who uh, have these, these super long commutes. There's been a lot of research on it over the course of the past 10 years or so um, because Americans um, are commuting much more now than we ever have before. Um, in 1990, Americans spent about 42 million hours commuting. Um, and now we spend about 56 million hours commuting. And so um, it's just a massive amount of time that our country installs or, or puts in, um, in in riding in the car to and from work. Um, and, of course, if there's negative health factors that are related to that $56 million or 56 million hours, I can't think of, of something that, that is any more the epitome of a public health issue than that one. Uh, so anyway, there has been a lot of stuff on it. Um, uh, a recent study kind of talked about how there's sort of a triple whammy, if you will, uh, around uh, uh, commuting. One, it's more stressful. The actual stress from commuting um, is, is worse than the stress you experience in your work, the stress you experience as a parent. Um, just literally sitting in your car and being stuck in traffic uh, is one of the most stressful things we can possibly do. Um, two, it takes up time that could be spent exercising. 
um, that could be spent in healthier pursuits. You spend an hour or two hours a day just sitting and doing nothing. You could be sitting and or not doing nothing. You could be exercising and, and spending your time a little bit better. Uh, but three, and very interestingly, they talked about microparticles that get into the air. Now, of course, it goes without saying that that um, being in a car creates more air pollution. And, and we have a lot of clean air rules in the United States, which are good and which have um, kept a lot of the super high smog levels that you see in urban centers around the world lower in the United States. Um, however, um, there are still microparticles in our air. And if you're on the interstates, um, you are more subject to those microparticles than you would be otherwise. Um, recently, some German researchers found that people who are prone to heart attacks actually become much more likely to have a heart attack within an hour of being in heavy traffic. Um, so traffic has actually a direct contributor to heart attacks. Um, we're not sure exactly why that would be, but scientists do say that air pollution appears to play a role. Uh, and in particular, those ultra-fine particulates, those little bitty nanoparticles in the air, um, that tend to be, that would tend to be highest around uh, highways and in tunnels uh, in traffic, do seem to play some sort of roles. Um, there was a bunch of researchers at Tufts University in New England, uh, in Boston, and they actually measured the particulates in the air uh, in the tunnel that goes under Boston that was part of the Big Dig about 15 years ago, and they found that the particulates in the tunnel are 10 times as high as they are, are outside the tunnel. And so you can imagine as you're going through the three miles of that tunnel, as you're sitting in traffic, you're bathing your lungs in these nanoparticles um, and and in addition to the stress and less time to exercise that can cause you all sorts of uh, cardiovascular problems over time um, now the good news is is that you can actually reduce about 90 to 95 percent of those particulates by simply doing one rolling up the window two turning on the air conditioner and three closing in the vents that bring out outside air and so if you look on your air conditioner the 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 vent versus the recirculate switch it over to recirculate and you can potentially get rid of about 90 to 95 percent of those really dangerous particles um, as soon as i read that as a matter of fact I, I quickly switched it over and i found that the default on my car air conditioning is actually not always that and so so uh, you'll want to keep an eye on that too. Um, interesting, there was a study, um, uh, another study about commutes uh, that was specific to Georgia. Uh, a bunch of researchers in Wisconsin did it, and they compared the healthiest counties in the state of Georgia, um, our state, to the least healthy counties. Uh, and they found several factors uh, that differed between the healthiest counties and the least healthy counties. Um, Excessive death, the biggest causes of excessive death were poverty, housing inequality, uh, not having health insurance, smoking, and obesity. Um, but they also found that another negative health factor was long commutes. In other words, the counties that had longer commutes had higher death rates um, uh, than did the counties with uh, lower commutes. Um, in a lot of metro Atlanta counties, more than 50% of the residents spend an hour of driving by themselves alone every single day. Um, the national median is about 29% of people who end up spending an hour driving alone each day. I'm a little bit on the high side of that, a little bit above that, um, but I was almost twice that prior to our move. Um, all this commuting can cause high blood pressure, weight gain, uh, and of course more air pollution as we talked about before. Uh, the Wisconsin study, though, also focused on the social benefits or the social disadvantages of sitting in your car solo for that much time every single day. Um, one of the, the researchers, Dr. Julie w Willems Van Dyke, said, 
quote, if you are sitting in your car, and particularly sitting in your car alone for long periods of time, it's going to cost you. Being in contact with people we feel emotionally connected to is important to health, and long commutes alone do not have, uh, do have a negative effect on health, unquote. And so kind of getting back to that, that what we talked about last time about exercising in groups, um, if you're isolating yourself solo, that actually has a very deleterious effect um, on your mental health as well as your physical health. Um, by the way, a side note, two side notes, I guess. One side note is the worst offender for long commutes in Georgia is Paulding County, Georgia, um, which is to the... Um, to the west of Atlanta, uh, a little bit farther out from here. I think Dallas is the county seat of Pauline County. More than 64% of the residents spend at least an hour driving alone each day. 64% of the people in Pauline County do that. Um, and by the way, not for nothing, a second side note here. In 2013, there was a study from Stony Brook University um, that showed that long commuters, people who had long commutes, tend to be less politically engaged. Um, that was particularly true for people who were uh, poor um, and had to commute a long way. Uh, those folks tend to be completely politically disengaged. Um, in fact, the length of your commute has a bigger impact on your level of civic and political engagement than almost any other factor in your life. Um, it has a bigger factor than your socioeconomic status alone, than your race, than your sex, than your gender, um, uh, than even the amount of time that you spend working. The length of your commute is one of the most uh, direct contributors to your level of political engagement, which I thought was interesting. Um, the third thing that I found myself looking up research on late, lately has to do with exercise and sleep. Um, I'm still injured, as you all know, if you've been listening to this podcast, I did the very first one about being injured and, and the odyssey of injury and and all the various things that come with being injured, um, sort of the, the prevented runner's injured syndrome, if you even want to call it that, the, the emotional roller coaster, the, the feeling of disengagement, the moodiness, etc. And I'm certainly still experiencing all of that, even though I'm exercising some now. Um, particularly the emotional stuff, like the roller coaster, everything. I found myself like like on emotional edge all the time. The other night, I got really choked up while I was reading a Curious George story to my sons. It's kind of incredible. But anyway, another thing that I've struggled with a little bit that you have perhaps too, if you've been injured, is disrupted sleep. And so I, I wanted to see if I could find some research on. Um, the link between not being able to exercise and not being able to sleep well. Because I think that's something that many of us have experienced. Um, I've even experienced it not when I'm injured, but even like when I'm tapering um, or if I take a day or two off or if I go on vacation even, when you'd think I would be super relaxed and be able to sleep, because I'm not running or riding, um, I'm not able to sleep. And it's it, it always felt like it was more to me than just you make yourself tired and therefore you have to sleep. Uh, and in fact, there was a 2012 study that, says, that said just that. Um, it was a 2012 study on the body's circadian rhythms. Um, I think most people have probably heard of that idea of circadian rhythms and the body's internal clock. Um, but maybe most folks don't realize that it's a real thing. Um, and that in fact, over time, starting around middle age, um, around your 40s and 50s, the body's clock starts to break a little bit. And you don't sleep as soundly as you once did and you find yourself being more tired in the, in the middle of the day and stuff like that. Um, so in 2012, um, a bunch of researchers, a bunch of psychiatrists actually, um, took a bunch of mice and they wanted to study the impact that exercise had on the circadian clock, and so on the circadian rhythms, on the body clock. And so they weren't looking at whether you could sleep better 
by tiring yourself out more by running, but rather if you would sleep better because your body's clock would be better regulated if, in fact, you exercise. So they kind of took a different tack on it, which I think is interesting. So can exercise fix a broken clock and thereby help you to sleep better? Um, now, they basically let the mice run whenever they wanted to run. Some of the rice, or not all of them, but some of the rice mice were able to run whenever they wanted to. Um, others were given access to running wheels only in the early portion of their waking time. Um, and then others were given access to wheels in the later stages of their uh, waking time. And so what would be like the equivalent of our morning or afternoon? And so you can kind of see where they're going with this. They wanted to see if, if um, first of all, if they could fix the clock by exercising, but second, whether exercising in the morning or the evening had a bigger impact. Um, and what they found was interesting. After several weeks of running, um, the internal clocks, the circadian rhythms of the mice were tougher uh, they were sturdier. They were stronger. Um, the the rhythms of the body tended to fall into more predictable patterns, which meant that during their waking times, the mice were more awake. And during their sleeping times, the mice were more asleep, um, which is certainly something that, that uh, if that carries over into human beings, is something worthwhile for us. Um, in other words, exercise could fix a broken clock. They also found, second finding, that those who exercise in the afternoon had a stronger and sturdier circadian rhythm. In other words, exercising in the afternoon has a better effect on regulating your circadian rhythms than exercising in the morning. Now, this one stood out to me, of course, as it might to, to you as well, because so many of us who are busy, busy professionals exercise first thing in the morning. Um, I personally get up super early in the morning and try to get in the workout or get in the work um, prior to going to my job. I kind of combine it, and that's the way I'm able to shorten my commute and duck the traffic by doing it first thing in the morning. Um, this suggests that if I could figure out a way to, to duck my commute some other way, and in fact exercise in the afternoon, that might have a better regulatory effect on my circadian rhythms, and it might help me actually sleep better at night. Now the third thing, and this is important to keep in mind too, the mice who exercised at night um, around the equivalent of 11 p.m. for us, and so those who came and exercised late, um, they actually had worse internal clocks. Um, it actually had a deleterious effect on their circadian rhythms. And so that's important to keep in mind too. Um, they actually were less able to sleep well um, because of the waking effect of the exercise. So the ideal time, according to this research, would be in the afternoon. The second most ideal time would be in, in the morning. Um, and a non-ideal time, an unideal time, would actually be at night. Um, at least in terms of your circadian rhythms, in terms of your internal clock. There, of course, are all sorts of other benefits of exercising uh, besides that one. Um, and so the fourth thing I did is, is, is or the fourth group of research I've been looking at uh, is the research around injuries. Um, so, yeah, I'm still injured, and, and so I'm still finding myself looking up stuff and reading research about injuries all the time. Um, not only to get a better sense of, of how they work and why they happen, but of course how to fix them because I seem to be struggling. Um, it's been 20 weeks. I'm coming up on 20 weeks since I had the procedure, the extracorporeal shockwave therapy. And I'm right here on the verge of, of declaring myself a failure uh, in that regard, um, which is, of course, um, dejecting. Anyway, um, but there was a recent study that was published in September that looked specifically at impact loads, uh, last September, uh, that looks at impact loads. Um, now, quick disclaimer on using research to back up your prejudices. 
Um, you've heard me say this before on this podcast. I, coming from a running background, very much believe that trail running is a good thing and that, that if you run on soft surfaces, you will become a stronger and less injured runner. Um, but research doesn't actually support that. That that conventional wisdom that I very much uphold um, is in conflict with some of the research that's out there. The research suggests that injury rates are the same for runners regardless of whether they run on trails or if they run on hard surfaces. Further, um, there's some evidence to suggest that running on trails because of the twisting that your feet does can actually be worse for Achilles tendinosis and Achilles issues in general um, because it forces that turning, that shearing to take place on your Achilles. Um, your Achilles, and I've talked about this a great deal with Carrie Smith, the, uh, the, the physical therapist that we had on a couple of weeks ago. Um, your Achilles can take a lot of impact but can only take it in a linear way. As soon as you start to twist it and turn it, that's when your Achilles starts to become injured. Um, and and if you're going out on trails, even though it's softer and even though the impact is not as hard on your feet, um, you still may get injured and you might even be at, at a greater risk of injury. That, to me, is a complete anathema. I, I, I don't, I'm not entirely comfortable with, 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 with that um, because I feel like um, not only I've been preached to for decades about how much better uh, running on trails are, but I found through my own experience uh, that running on trails, both as a coach and as an athlete, I found that running on trails um, makes you stronger and keeps you healthier. Um, Further, I can actually take it out even a step farther. When I was talking to Will Kramer on this podcast a few months ago, uh, I talked about how where I've, I've spent some time wearing Hoka 1-1 shoes. Now, I'm not a big advocate of Hoka 1-1s necessarily, and I certainly don't think that one pair of shoes works for every person. What I always suggest when it comes to shoes is you go to a running specialty store and you let them look at your feet and you run in several pairs of shoes. But... I do think that, that what Hoka's can do and what Conrad Stoltz, who's an ex-Terra world champion, said about them when he, when he became sponsored by them was that they softened up every ground that you ran on. Um, that, that when you're running on pavement, it made it feel like you were, made it feel to your body as if you were running on trails. Um, and so therefore it wasn't as hard on your body. Now, if impact loads don't matter, then that doesn't matter either. Um, it doesn't matter if it's softening up. But I've always thought that that softening does matter. And, and yet another reason why I thought it, besides just running on that, is because running on trails, is because when I've run in my hokas, I've felt as if it takes less out of my body. I felt uh, as if it's not as, as, as painful sometimes on my feet and on my Achilles um, than, than it is if I wear uh, slider shoes. Um, one workout in particular uh, this past fall when I was trying to hold it together um, and trying not to be injured, um, I, I started to run in a pair of Mizuno Ikadens, which are fairly slight racing flats, um, and I did about a lap of the workout, and it hurt a lot, and I switched it to my Hoka's, and I finished the workout because I could the, the pain was bearable with the soft Hoka's on, and it wasn't bearable with the much slighter and much harder Mizuno Ikadens. Now, anyway... Back to this study. Um, so like I said, that was a big, long disclaimer there on using research to back up your prejudices because that's about what, what's kind of what I'm about to do. Uh, there was essentially a recent study here that showed uh, that impact loads do in fact matter. Um, and, and 
if I really wanted to stretch it a little bit, if I wanted to extrapolate farther than probably authors would be comfortable with me extrapolating, I could say, well, you're reducing the impact loads on soft surfaces or when you wear soft shoes like Hoka's, and therefore uh, that would mean that, that uh, impact loads or soft surfaces do in fact matter. So anyway, to the study, they took 249 run- runners, um, all female runners as a matter of fact, all of whom were heel strikers. Um, there's been a lot of uh, criticism of people who strike first with their heels, uh, saying that they're less efficient runners and they're more likely to get injured. And so the um, the the researchers went ahead and just took all heel strikers and all women in order they wouldn't have to control for those differences there. And they tracked them for two years. So it wasn't just like they tracked them for a couple of months or for a few runs, but for two years worth of running, they, they tracked them via online logs. Now, over the course of that time, of the 249 runners, 100 of them got serious injuries and 40 more of them got minor injuries. Now that alone I think is actually pretty striking. 140 out of 249 runners over the course of two years got some sort of injury, um, which, you know, that, that's pretty incredible. Um, but they looked a little bit closer at the remaining 109 runners that didn't get injured during that two-year stretch. And then they found that 21 of those runners that didn't get injured had never been injured, um, including runners that did ultras and ran, had run, trained for multiple marathons and all sorts of things like that. And so they started looking more specifically at what is it about these 21 runners who didn't get injured during this time and had never been injured before that kept them from getting injured? What differentiated them from all of these other people in their study that were getting injured? The thing? Impact loads. They found that these runners were significantly lighter on their feet than all the rest of their runners. They, they singled out one runner in particular that they said had, who had never been injured and had run multiple marathons, who, who um, they said recorded the lightest impact loads that they had ever seen on their pressure gauges. Um, and they said that she looked like an insect running across water. She was so light on her feet. Um, and so... The message here, the takeaway, is to run softly. Um, lift your feet and, and try to reduce your ground impact time. Um, try not to come down hard. Try not to be too clunky. Uh, and in fact, that can ultimately, potentially, make you less injured. Um, that's certainly something that I've been keeping in mind over the course of my run walks over the course of the last couple of weeks here as I've been trying to test running, trying to do what I can uh, while still injured um, and hopefully healing um, at the same time. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. Be sure to drop me a line and let me know which intro or outro music you prefer, and maybe we can make that our official song here. Um, while you're dropping me a line, make sure that you visit me on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, uh, on the blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Uh, don't forget to visit our sponsor, ITL Coaching, at itlcoaching.com. Um, at ITL Coaching on Twitter and on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. Uh, finally, don't forget to visit our other sponsor, uh, Casey the Travel Planner, my wife who was on with me a few weeks ago. Uh, you can visit her to book all of your travel for your various races coming up at facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner MEV or just drop her a line at Casey at UGA.edu. Right now, she is working on a trip that 
combined going to Big Sky with skiing in Jackson Hole. So uh, she can do anything. Check her out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks.